Alrighty, we're in Jonah at the moment though, not Ezekiel. So uh, let me read from uh, Jonah. Jonah has, let's tell the story of Jonah. Jonah's been asked to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites. Jonah doesn't want to do that because the Ninevites represent all that's evil and dark in his world. Uh, he instead of walking the two-week journey, that's a decent journey, 600 miles. Instead of that though, he goes down to Joppa, pays for a ticket to go on a ship to Tarshish, which is about 3,000 miles away on the coast of Spain. Doesn't want to go to the dark city of Nineveh, he wants to go to the sun-drenched beaches of Spain and relax, because that's what he would like to do rather than listen to the Lord and go to Nineveh. The Lord doesn't want him to do that. Storm comes. It's the sailors who are pagan sailors and don't follow the Lord, they're like, somebody's upset the gods. And then Jonah says, it's probably me. And they're like, well, we're not going to throw you overboard. We're just going to trust God. And then there's still a storm. So they're like, well, God, forgive us. But we're going to throw you overboard. Seas calm. They make vows to the Lord. They're going to follow God faithfully. So the pagan sailors have committed to following God faithfully, whereas Jonah, the prophet of God, because they say to him, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm in the ministry. Uh, he's not doing so well. He's doing a runner. He ends up in the belly of a fish. Uh, we talked about that last Sunday. Saved not so much from the storm, but in the storm. And even in the belly of the fish, he prays this incredible prayer, not that of a dying man. Uh, the dying man prayers are like, God help me, God help me, God help me. The coming alive prayers are, oh Lord, I just thank you that you have revealed your goodness. And this is the kind of prayer that Jonah is praying. So he's been saved in the storm. First of all, and then ultimately saved from the storm because he's vomited up on a beach, which is an awesome thought because um, vomiting is not nice, let alone to be the vomit. That's a whole nother level. So Jonah, Jonah navigates that well. And uh, let me read from, um, this is the last line of his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols and forsake their own mercy. Uh, those who cling to worthless idols forsake their own mercy. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And this is this kind of moment of heart reorientation for Jonah. And it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Hallelujah. There's a life verse for you. If you don't have a life verse yet, just write that one down. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 or 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach to it the message I tell you. So in an ancient Near Eastern context, the story's being told. You've got to imagine the audience is sitting on the edge of their seat a little bit. Like they've, they've heard this line before, go to the city and preach this. And Jonah went and got a ticket at a ship in Joppa to go to Tarshish. So they're like, what's Jonah going to do now? Uh, and the expectation is probably that he's going to go to Tarshish. Because like, you know, if you're in the ministry and you've run, but been thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish and spat back out, you're probably like, I should probably go and do what I meant to do. So they're probably expecting him to, to do that. But, you know, there's been some twists and turns around along the way. So that's what they're expecting. Let's uh, allow ourselves, though, to be a little sidetracked this morning. I'm going to go to the, another little prophet called Nahum. Nahum, I'm going to read a few verses from the book of Nahum. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. 
Nahum, Nahum, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, Chapter 3. Woe to Nineveh, woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, neither without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show your nation, the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh in, is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? There you go. There's another series of life verses. Again, if you don't have any life verses yet, uh, just go to Nahum, this little prophet in the Old, Test- uh, Old Testament. Uh, that's just 13 verses that I read. There's a, there's a lot more verses that we could, uh, we could pull out. 13 verses. Uh, Nahum really knows how to paint a picture. Uh, it's provocative. Nahum gets the people going. Like He, he knows what he is doing. Uh, he leaves you shaking in your boots. Nahum's a little bit like if you've seen the movie A Knight's Tale. And there's that guy Chaucer who, well Chaucer's a famous writer, but in the movie there's Chaucer. And uh, he is the one that introduces uh, the knight before the, for the, uh, before the battle kind of thing. He says, I have the pride, the privilege, nay the pleasure of introducing to you a knight sired by knights. A knight who can trace his lineage all the way back to Charlemagne. And it he, and he goes on kind of thing. Nahum's a little bit like this. Nahum knows how to kind of wax lyrical, paint a picture, get the people going, move some people to action and response, and kind of, kind of, you know, be serious about what's what's going on. This is this is top shelf stuff. Jonah's really a poor second cousin. Uh, let's have a look at Jonah's prophecy to Nineveh. Jonah chapter three, verse three to four. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. <laughs> That's Jonah. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, he has this, Jonah has this amazing encounter with God. This moment of kind of redemption. Uh, you, you could call it resurrection life, really. To come from the, the depths of the sea, the belly of a whale, to find life again. Jonah has had an encounter and his world has come alive all over again. Radical kind of encounter. Now though he goes like kind of all Napoleon dynamite on us. Like slouch shoulders, kind of wandering through this big city of Nineveh. 40 more days, then destruction. Kind of, yeah. 40 more days, then destruction. 40 more days. Like if any of us saw somebody walking down the street like that, we'd just kind of dismiss I mean, we've probably all seen people walking down the street like that. We dismiss them as being a bit mad, a bit unusual, a bit kind of crazy. I mean, Nahum knows how to get the people going. But, but uh, Jonah, Jonah's not doing a very good job. Uh, not at all. Uh, Jonah's a little bit like... Uh, He's a little bit like, the, you know how you get a kid to do a chore? And the kid doesn't want to do a chore? This may be a life story of mine, it may not be, I'm not sure. The kid doesn't want to do a chore, but the kid's going to do the chore. But they're going to do it so badly that they never get asked to do it again. Oh, I'll mow the lawns. I'll mow the lawns. Crisscrosses, zigzags, slight gap leaving like long grass between each kind of up and down. Kind of thing. So I did the lawns. Like, oh, I'm just 
not going to ask you to mow the lawns again. I'll just mow the lawns. It feels like Jonah's a little bit like, oh yeah, I'll go to Nineveh. 40 more days, destruction. And, uh, you know, God will never ask me to do a prophecy again because, you know, you can't get worse than that. Again, ancient Near Eastern readers, they're on the edge of their seat. What, I mean, what's next? Jonah going to get struck down by lightning? You know, swallowed by a hungry hippo? I don't know. What's going to happen? He's had the whale as the hungry hippo after him. Let's read Jonah chapter 3, verse 5 to 10. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It is literally the worst prophecy of all time. And literally the greatest response of all time. Uh, the whole city is to go into fasting and repentance and put on sackcloth. The king declares, even the animals need to go into repentance and fasting. Don't let the animals you know, eat. Tie a rope around there so they can't get their heads down to, to eat, the, eat the food. Uh, sackcloth is, is uh, they, they get goat hair and they turn it inside out. And you, you take off your robes and, and wear that kind of scratchy, scratchy and itchy to kind of remind you of your need to be repentant and mournful and, and, and to say sorry kind of thing. Uh, we've got, in this story, animals in sackcloth. We've got goats wearing cloaks of goat hair. So again, there's, there's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of edge of your seat kind of. This is a crazy story for a first century context. A little bit lost on us if we, unless you kind of dig into a little bit. So, so what, we're, what we've got here is this exaggerated picture of repentance. Even the goats are wearing goat hair out of repentance before the Lord. And maybe the Lord will relent and have compassion. Worst prophecy of all time. The greatest kind of result of all time. You want repentance? This is repentance. You know, this is repentance. You, you, you're sorry? Well, when you get home, you get your cat and your dog and you tie something around their head so they can't eat. And make sure they're sorry as well, kind of thing. Like this is this is this is a good level of repentance. Alright, so what to make of that for us this morning? There's a sense in which prophecy is predictive. Uh, and there are prophecies throughout scripture which which speak to future events that unfold and, and, and things like that. Uh, it does concern the future. But pro prophecy primarily isn't so much um, foretelling as it is the forecasting of possible consequences most of the prophecy in the old testament is the the forecasting of probable consequences if you continue to walk this way this is what will come upon you if you turn and repent and walk this way watch as this begins to unfold in your life it, it, it's more a forecasting of consequence uh, largely well, well less about the future that concerns the future more about how to act now in the, in the here and now, how to, how to behave in this moment in light of what could be in the future or could be down the track or could be around the corner. And the, the prophets throughout the Old Testament continually are a call to repentance, a call to turn from wicked ways, to live faithfully before God, 
to live in covenant faithfulness with Yahweh, to live according to the degrees and the, the values and the, the, the law of Moses, to, to follow Yahweh faithfully. Don't turn from the, to the left or the right. Meditate on this book of the law, night and day. Make your path straight. And the prophets are continually calling people back to that path. But they do more than that. They comment on what it is to be off that path. What it looks like to be on that path. The, the prophets offer commentary of, huh, you think that, that is what it is to follow the law? That's not what the law was about. This is what it is. And they, they offer commentary on how it is to be faithful. Uh, and in doing so, these kind of covenant enforcers, uh, they, also, they also give commentary on the nature of God, the values of God, the, the heart of God, the attitude of God. What, what is God like? And the, the prophets offer us that as well. So commentary and clarity regarding what it meant to live as faithful representatives and worshippers of God. Isaiah 6 verse 6 is a famous passage. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God, not burnt offerings. If you look at the law, the law is like, it seems like they want, a, they want a lot of sacrifices and a lot of burnt offerings. And the prophets go, oh, let me just comment on that. Hosea comments on that. says, you know what the Lord desires? It's not sacrifices and burnt offerings. What the Lord desires is mercy. Uh, I think it's in Amos. Uh, Amos talks about uh, you have all your worship festivals and your concerts and your get-togethers. It's like that's not really what I'm after. What I'm after is mercy rolling out like a river, flowing down like a river. So the prophets offer commentary on that. So it reveals the nature and the heart of God. God who does not desire burnt offerings but desires righteousness, holy, whole and wholesome living call to faithful covenant living and ongoing revelation of the nature of God and Jonah is one of the book of the prophets so we've got to ask ourselves well what is Jonah teaching us what's Jonah what, what's the prophecy of Jonah teaching us in regard to the nature of God or what it is to live faithfully before God it sits in there well uh, the warning of consequences isn't really that enlightening 40 more days and then destruction so there's not really you can unpack that if you want to, but in the Hebrew, it just is 40 more days and then destruction. It's basically saying, you, you know, live a destructive, oppressive, military-dominated way that destroys people's lives. In the end, you'll reap the destruction. So to the wind, you'll reap a whirlwind kind of thing. So there's not so much in that. But what then does Jonah reveal in regard to the nature or the heart of God that maybe we could pay attention to this morning? Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that had been threatened. God relented. Commentaries talk about God relented with compassion. God changed God's mind. God revoked the sentence. God abandoned the plan. Uh, God, God relented. God repented. God repented. God turned from one way of being to walk a different way of been uh, did not bring on the destruction that had been threatened all of these ideas are kind of embedded in this idea of God relenting God, God's, God sees their repentance and their the sincerity of their heart and God himself relents and turns and returns and repents this is an interesting this is an interesting thing to see Nineveh the city of darkness the city that personifies sin and oppression and evil in Jonah's time is treated with compassion. God will not be mocked. God will have justice. Evil will be destroyed. And yet, 
God desires, God delights in, God's heart is for mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. To turn and receive the love and the compassion of God. Later we'll read, for God so loved the world, gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would receive eternal life. Jonah's just received mercy upon mercy, you could say. Jonah has just received the lavish grace and compassion and goodness of God. And uh, you would think Jonah might be able to walk through the city of Nineveh and offer that same good news to the people of Nineveh. You, you would think if, if I was Jonah arriving in Nineveh, I'd be wanting to gather a little crowd and go, I've got a story to tell you. Man, do I have a story to tell you. God told me to come here and I said, no, I'm going there. But there was a storm and a ship and the depths and a whale and now I'm here. It's amazing how much God has loved me and cared for me and saved me and rescued me. And God wants to do the same for you. You would think that Jonah would be able to mirror that. You know, the stories in the New Testament, the, Jesus talks of the parable of the, you know, the one that's given a great debt can't forgive the one that's forgiven this little debt. We've got echoes of this happening in this story of Jonah. Instead, he just offers the great Napoleon dynamite of all prophecies. But Nineveh repents and Nineveh returns. And what does God do? God mirrors this back to them. God relents and repents and turns, even as they relent and repent and turn. God mirrors that same reality back to them. Mercy, grace, kindness, forgiveness. Jonah's not able to mirror that or reflect that to Nineveh, but God himself reflects that. Jesus mirrors to the woman caught in adultery. It's the story of the woman forgiven much, who pours out the expensive oil, to Matthew the tax collector, to Zacchaeus the tax collector. Uh, to the Roman centurion, to the thief on the cross, to Peter, who denies Christ three times. Each of these, each of these different encounters, they ask for forgiveness, for mercy. And what does Jesus mirror back to them? Forgiveness and mercy and grace. They come with humility and they meet Jesus as one who is lowly and humble, kind and generous and compassionate. They come with a contrite spirit and they meet God in Christ who is the full revelation of God coming with a humble spirit, a peaceful spirit, a kind spirit, a generous spirit. It's mirrored back to them. But little kids, they learn as we mirror with them as adults. A little kid comes with a smiley face and you smile back. Or, or the little kids, you start to smile at a kid and the kid learns and works to smile back. Pull a face at a little kid and a little kid pulls a face back kind of. This, this way of kind of reading language, of understanding. Uh, my youngest is 10 now, and so he's moved beyond those baby years, but he's still the same. You catch his eye, if you wink, he'll try to wink back, kind of thing. He hasn't kind of caught that now. If you smile, he'll smile back. He tries not to. Like, he try, he try, you smile, and he'll... But he can't, can't help it. Pulls a face. Uh, he'll pull a face back. If he runs up to me laughing... I laugh back and smile and give him a big hug. If he runs up to me screaming and crying in pain, he's hurt himself somehow, I mirror back to him compassion and concern. It's important to get that right. They come up crying and screaming in pain and you laugh at them. That doesn't go real well. Uh, we all know as parents, those of us that are parents, you'd know as well, sometimes they're in pain and something bad's happened, but it's actually kind of funny and you're doing your very best 
to keep a straight face and not mirror the wrong thing back to them. You mirror the wrong thing back to them and suddenly all hell breaks loose. Now it's all way worse than it was before. You were laughing. I'm never telling you anything again in my life kind of thing. Mirroring is important. It establishes trust and connection and relationship and understanding. Appreciation. It says you're not alone. Mirroring says I'll meet you where you're at. And in every relationship, we, we come to appreciate those people in our lives that meet us where we're at. If we're downhearted, concerned, mournful, we want people that can meet us in that place. Not people that are like, oh, well, it'll be right. Woo-hoo! Like that, that, they have, they've not successfully mirrored back to you where you're at. And it actually becomes disorientating and, and, and can be damaging to a relationship. So here in Jonah, we have this incredible moment of divine mirroring. Nineveh repents and God relents. The, the Hebrew word is literally repent as well. There's the sense of returning or turning. So, wow. You mean, you mean you say that, what does Jonah teach us regarding the character of God? It's teaching us that where we're at, God will meet us in that same place. Next you'll be telling me that God takes on flesh and enters the story and is tempted in every way just as we have. Who knows, maybe. Haven't read the rest. I haven't got that far in the Bible yet. I'm only up to Ezekiel. Just so you know, that's not true. Proverbs 3 verse 34. He mocks proud mockers. He mocks proud mockers. Shows favor and grace to the humble. God will, God, you know that old saying, God helps those that help themselves. That's not in the Bible. That's not a thing. But God does meet us in that same way. You come, you come, you come with a, a stiff heart and a cold heart and you, you get a cold return. You come in humble repentance, lowly, and you find God stoops. So that, that's what grace is. Grace is to stoop down, to stoop to our place, our level. God does not wield lightning bolts from a cosmic throne in the sky. God's paternal in nature. Loving and kind and comes alongside. God is not far from any one of us. Smile to God. God smiles back. Give to God. God gives back. Be humble before God. God is humble. Again, later in the story. He that themselves wants to receive the forgiveness of God must be those that forgive others. I've talked about this before. It's kind of like forgiveness... It's like the snorkel, and you got you got to keep the snorkel clear to, to you know the giving and the receiving of forgiveness of this kind of flow effect. As soon as we start to you know bubble up unforgiveness and resentment and let that kind of you know creep into our lives, it blocks up that snorkel. And it's not that the forgiveness of God is not there; it just becomes hard to access when our lives are bunched up with unforgiveness. But we begin to forgive and let go, and we discover <gasps> freely forgiven. Forgives, forgives much. When we turn to God, God returns to us. God mirrors that. It's not that God has ever turned away from us, though. That's not the, the issue. It's the issue is that God's wanting to, you know, my kids, they come. And if I'm not paying attention, it's not that I don't love them or anything like that. It's like it's, I've never really turned away from them. It's just that this, the point of the story is to teach us that God turns to us when we turn to God. Not that God had ever turned away. What about Nahum's prophecy though? 
how do we reconcile that with Nahum's prophecy? Because that's a humdinger, that's a rip-roar. There's some, there's some nasty stuff in there. How do we figure that out? Well, if you read the text closely, Jonah's prophecy, and Jonah as the prophet, went to Nineveh to bring the word from the Lord to Nineveh, to do something in Nineveh that God wanted to do in Nineveh. Always that Nineveh would receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it. We'll talk about that next Sunday. Jonah wanted nothing to do with it because Jonah knew that God would forgive. I mean, the next verses that we haven't got up to. See, I told you that. If I went there and preached that, you'd forgive them? That's exactly what I didn't want to happen. So there's a whole lesson there. It's like, Jonah, you've really fallen off the bandwagon real quick. Always the point was grace and mercy and forgiveness. Nahum's prophecy is different. If you read it closely, Nahum's prophecy is rhetorically addressed to Nineveh. But Nahum never travels to Nineveh. No one in Nineveh would ever have heard that prophecy. Nahum's prophecy about Nineveh was to Judah and to the king of Judah. And essentially a reminder, because now I think it's about 300 years later, or 250 years later, Nineveh's turned back to its evil ways. It's a reminder to the people of Israel, you know, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Nahum doesn't travel to Nineveh and bring that news to Nineveh. Nahum prophesies to Israel concerning Nineveh. It's a reminder that, hey, evil empires, violence, oppression, taking advantage of the weak, mistreating people, lack of, which is a lack of justice and righteousness, ultimately will end in destruction. And it's a reminder. And the people of Israel are not like, yeah, yay, Nineveh. The whole point of Nahum's prophecy is, oh, are we, are we that kingdom? Are we that empire? Do we suppose that if we can get rid of the Assyrians, get rid of Nineveh, that then we'll have our place? But will we, are we the ones that maybe might do that to others as well? So careful reading of Jonah and Nahum, you realize there's two quite different things going on there. Nahum never travels to Nineveh. His word is rhetorically addressed to Nineveh, but it is a challenge to the people of Israel. So even Nahum's prophecy doesn't reflect a God that throws lightning bolts. It's a reminder that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction. Don't worry, those evil empires around there, because it never, it never again encourages Israel to resist or to fight or to do these things. It says, you just watch. In time, the evil empires will crumple down. Don't go that path. Don't walk that path. Don't live that. Follow God faithfully. What about us then, 2,400 years later, approximately? Well, we're in Lent. In Lent, we are mindful of wilderness experiences. We're mindful that there's darkness in all of us. Elements to all of us that need the ongoing forgiveness and redemption and healing and resurrection life of God to restore and mend failings and shortcomings and mistakes and sins Lent's a season where we're to be honest enough to recognize that rather than to suppress that to to own that rather than to disown that or to ignore that let it bubble to the surface come into the light what do we discover we discover that God doesn't laugh at us when we cry God doesn't tell us off when we're honest. God doesn't point the finger when we confess. 
God doesn't embarrass us when we are vulnerable. God is like a sensitive paternal figure who recognizes the space the child finds themselves in and situates themselves in that same place in order to come alongside. You're weeping. Jesus knows what it is to weep. You're lonely. Jesus knows what it is to be lonely. Could none of you stay awake? I just prayed for a moment. You're vulnerable. Jesus knows what it is to be vulnerable. You're tired. Jesus knows what it is to be tired. God meets us where we're at. Fully cognizant, fully understanding, fully appreciating where we're at. And that's the invitation of Lent. To go to a place we don't want to go and then discover that God will meet us in that very place. And doesn't laugh, but comes alongside with grace and mercy and love. Jonah did not want to go to the place of darkness, but then when he got there, he discovered that God was there already doing things in people's lives, and they all got forgiven and made him angry. Not so for us. It shouldn't be like that. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of God who comes alongside and meets us where we're at and reflects back to us right where we're at. Not laughing when we're crying. Challenge as well is that we would be that for one another. That we would not laugh when others cry. That we wouldn't be telling people off when they're honest. Wouldn't be pointing the finger at people who confess. Wouldn't be embarrassing those who are vulnerable. It's just what it is to be a healthy representative of God. That we would reflect that same love and grace and mercy and kindness to the world around us. To our spouse, to our kids, to our families, to our extended families, to our church community, to our neighbours, to those we encounter in the twos and fros and highways and byways and nooks and crannies of life. That even as Christ is that to us, that we would be that to the world around us. Jonah was not able to do that. Jonah failed miserably. May we not be like Jonah. May we reflect to the world around us the same grace and love and compassion that Christ reflects and offers to us in Jesus. All right, let's stand. We could have communion, but we've already done that, so we won't have seconds. Instead, we'll uh, close in prayer and have a tea and coffee. I think the main thing I'd love you to remember, season of Lent is an invitation to be vulnerable before God. It's an invitation to own some things that at other times we'd prefer not to own. It would be easier to suppress it than to own it. But to know in that season, you, you can suppress it all the rest of the year, that's no trouble. 
because the reality is if you just bring it into the light for the 40 days of Lent leading into Easter and resurrection life, you probably won't need to suppress it after that. The main thing to know is that if you're willing to be vulnerable with God and bring that into light, you discover a God that is compassionate and kind. So as you go this morning, go knowing that God delights to meet you right where you're at. There is no darkness that is beyond his light. No darkness that God finds off-putting. For God delights to bring healing in the darkness. The holy confrontation of Nineveh, not the escapism of Tarshish. Attentive to God, there is an invitation to a holy confrontation that heals and restores and renews. So don't settle for surface joy of escapism. Instead, allow the redemptive love of God to bring ocean deep peace. There is a light that shines brighter than the sun. He steals the night and casts no shadow. In this Lenten season, be attentive to God in prayer and scripture and spiritual direction and allow the light of Christ to shine in your life in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.